Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. So welcome to the Black Letter podcast today, a special edition from Engine Company number 12 in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm Tom Dunlap, your host and former Army officer, and that's only apropos because today with me I have Mr. Bob Edinger. Bob is the former Deputy Chief Counsel and Interim Chief Counsel at the CIA. So he did lots of secret stuff. Um, some would say he killed Osama bin Laden. He might not, but I, I like to say that because it sounds great. He's involved in that. Fantastic. We've got Bob with us. We also have uh, Major General Charlie Fletcher with us today. Uh, Major General Fletcher was uh, commanded over 20,000 troops, participated in OIF in 2003, and was the J3 at Transcom uh, for a period of time, and is now uh, with us today at our Association of the United States Army Cocktail Party, which is where this podcast is taking place. Thank you for joining us, General Fletcher. My pleasure. And then with us is David Verhey. David uh, is, all I can say, and I need David to really introduce himself, because every time I ask him, he's like, God, oh, it's dark, it's so dark. Um, but uh, cybersecurity, Department of Defense. Correct. Um, and uh, was in the Office of General Counsel at the Navy as well. And uh, you were involved in the Bush administration as well. Correct. Uh, I believe. Yes. Um, so welcome three distinguished gentlemen, all of whom have always outranked me in the government uh, service. Um, today we're going to talk about national security and cybersecurity and kind of socioeconomic issues, um, things going on. Uh, hot button issues like China, Hong Kong, um, things that are happening on the internet, the global economy, and Bob uh, Edinger and David Verhey lead the practice group at Dunlap, Bennett and Ludwig for cybersecurity and national security. And General Fletcher has joined us as one of our guest speakers tonight at our firm's uh, event at the Association of the U.S. Army. So um, I'll kick it off with, well, let's start with, with Bob. So we have a kind of a list of questions. I think the first question that I'll address to all three of you, and then Bob, you can take it first, and you guys kind of jump in as you see fit. But uh, so there, we have a global economy. I don't think that's like, I'm not gonna ask you, do we have a global economy? That seems stupid. But we have a global economy. How does that affect how companies look at, think about, and deal with cybersecurity in the context of dealing with their customers or dealing with government data that they have, things like that? Um, and is that the right question to ask? Well, it certainly is. Um... A good question to ask. There's uh, there's so many that you could ask because the, the effect of the global economy and uh, the international businesses um, are going to have on the development of this cybersecurity practice, national defense practice, national security practice is a mess. Uh, companies, uh, some of the larger ones, don't necessarily see themselves as first an American company or a French company or another company. They see themselves as a global company where they have to balance the equities of all the countries in order to maximize their return overall. So where, so like the NBA. 
It could be the NBA. Right. The, I mean, if they make the wrong statements, kind of particular exactly. country. In the cybersecurity realm, there's there's different methods of cybersecurity as well as who are you going to protect your data against? Are you protecting it only against um, criminal actors? Are you protecting against your own government being collected? Against consumers who are consumer um, uh, marketing agencies who gather the data so they can put ads on your phones. Right. If you are, um, if you don't have to worry about any particular governments, and you just sort of do your best uh, to, to sort of balance the ability to sell the data as long as the ability to get customers. But if you have to limit yourself to things that your government may want or not want to get exported, uh, such as um, high-level encryption devices and things of that nature, then your market overseas is impacted. Um, and I saw... Uh, We've seen in the last few years with things like Apple declining to sort of a break into a, a phone because of the concern for its business overseas that it would it would look as if its phones were not secure and that uh, they would help the United States break anything. And so I think that was a debate for a while that eventually got resolved when the FBI found somebody else to do it. But it was interesting that they were focused as much on if we break it, what that would do to their overseas market as what it might do to the, the American market. Well, so, so that's interesting. As, as I remember it, there was some talk, at least in U.S. media, that Apple wasn't doing it. So they were worried about U.S. consumers' perception. It was that kind of a smokescreen to say, well, we're worried about our iPhone buyers in the U.S. And if we share this with our government, they won't trust us. But really, I, I mean, I, I haven't heard that, but I think you're right. That makes sense. You're worried about the much larger global market. Well, General Fletcher, so you just came back from an exercise, is that right? I did. Yeah, what, what was that? It was a battle staff training for the um, one of the two major uh, force commands in NATO. And it's focused on a scenario to get all of the countries and the staffs that work together in the, at the NATO level of operations to be able to integrate and then focus on incursions across all the domains, cyber, land, air, space, um, in an integrated way. And obviously the cyber part of this is becoming increasingly important. Well, right, so interference with the elections, there's a little something in the news about the Ukraine being involved with that, or I've heard that anyway. So um, any talk of that at this conference, you were at this NATO conference and is there any like major thing that came out of that in your view that somebody watching this podcast, if they're a CEO of a, a cybersecurity company or the CEO of a company that hires a cybersecurity company, like a defense contractor or something like that, any big takeaways from a global perspective, from a NATO perspective uh, that, that you could share? Uh, more from the commercial side. I've dealt okay. in the worldwide distribution business for probably 20 years. Even as the J3 at Transcom, the majority of the lift that we got was from the commercial sector. And we in the military increasingly looked at the information management in the commercial realm on backbones that were very established and to try and expand that to the to the moving forward in those structures that we had to set up as we So what moved. do you mean by backbones that were established? What kind uh, of backbones? Information backbone, where you have uninterrupted uh, internet, where you have a control from end to end of the flow of physical items. Okay. But increasingly all the companies in the world and who are, as you said, multinational 
information is the coin of the realm, and managing that is more and more the differentiator in business. And we in the military start off by an inability to manage the same level of information. So we started tagging and putting information on tags that we could read, which over time became a vulnerability because other people could read it. Could read your tags and could figure read out our what tags you were and tracking. They could see what we were moving and they knew what to build for. We saw this in Afghanistan. We saw it uh, in all over uh, Asia as we were moving. But increasingly with these companies, we're seeing that that the attacks against their networks are impacting their the global economy in terms of their ability to manage their own assets and all of the elements there. So you have a you have an offensive aimed at networks that are both military and commercial, but the commercial directly impacting the military. So and that's they do kind it of a without door. attacking us directly. Right. They do it by attacking those things that keep us in business. Okay. Well, so David, can, can you tell us like what, what steps could a company take to get ahead of that? I mean, you're a commercial company. You have to worry about your data. You can't, we've obviously got ITAR and we've got export issues with data, but your data is all over the place when it's on the internet, right? Yeah. How, how does a company get ahead of something like that from a practical standpoint, from a legal standpoint? How do those two things interplay? So, so practically and legally, Tom, right at the outset, we, all companies have to understand that they are part of a vast information network that's undergoing really a global revolution right now. And that global revolution is, is described really best in one phrase is hyperconnectivity. Okay. So if you are a company even doing a small amount of business over the internet, you are connected to that system, which is global in nature. And so as a consequence, if you understand as a company that your intersection with that network then exposes you to a whole realm of threats, the very threats that both Bob and General Fletcher outlined. That's the first step. Understanding that you're not an island in and of yourself, just because you're not a global bank doesn't mean that you won't potentially lose uh, important company resources and proprietary value uh, if you don't protect those resources. So number one is understanding that. Second is getting a clear sense of what your exposure is as a company. So that's what we call the assessment phase. And without being too detailed in that, it's just understanding what's going on in your own household, so okay. to speak. And once that is then determined, then you can take the steps to proactively go against those risks. And oftentimes what we recommend is to work with uh, top-notch commercial vendors who have the skills and the capabilities to address those threats. So what about, so you have a breach and so, Bob, you're now in the commercial space as a lawyer, and you work with private companies, a lot of them. I've seen some of them come through the firm. What do you do when you have a breach? What's, what's the first thing? What are the kind of the things you need to worry about? And what is a breach? Well, let's start with that. I mean, so this is basic level stuff. What is a data breach? I mean, I know that I get free like credit monitoring from the government because my name was on a computer at the Veterans Administration, like you probably get it too, General Fletcher. But so that was a breach. I get that. But what, what other kinds of breaches that aren't so obvious? What, what is a breach? Well, I think most people look at a breach as getting into a system. People who aren't supposed to get into a system get into it, and it gives them the ability to manipulate, steal, delete debt. So hacking is sort of the common uh, phrase term for it. But uh, a lot of it um, that people have to watch out for is companies that can get into your system you now don't know they're there, and depending on what your business enterprise is, they can either manipulate your own data mm -hmm. in order to um, make you less competitive, 
Okay. Uh, because things that you think you were going to design correctly or data that you have now, you're using incorrect data uh, or steal your trade secrets and apply them against you. Um, finally, I think we're all aware of just being individuals, personal data, financial records, medical records, and then using them against people to get false identities and just your financially benefit, financially benefit. And so I think, you know, a, a breach is, I just look at it as somebody getting your system who's not supposed to, and then that's a breach, but the breach by somebody who then can manipulate your data, steal the data, destroy the data, things of that nature. Those are the things that most of our laws are uh, written for. Um, and you say, what the first thing you need to do is you need to make whatever notice requirements you have based upon the type of data you have. The statutes have different uh, time elements for the type of data, whether it's medical or financial or, or, or other data. Uh, you'll need to uh, assess, if you can, the extent of the data uh, that's lost. Some systems, they know somebody came in and they know something went out, but they're unable to determine what it was that went out. And so now they're they can't scope their notice obligations based upon data that was lost, but you have to scope it based upon all the data that might have been lost based upon the system. That so this ties into what David was saying, that you have to get ahead of a data breach so that you know what you've lost. I mean, even understanding you might, you might be so behind the curve that you don't know what you've lost when you have a breach. Right, because you can tell somebody went in and you saw bits went out. It was too many bits to be minor, but you have no idea what data they took. Well, you so see, did you hear about the Twitter breach recently? Any of you guys? So I think it was last week, Twitter announced that in September, it accidentally shared all of its users' information with advertisers without permission, um, some kind of matching, but they didn't disclose how much. Uh, and I assume that was either a lack of knowledge or a lack of willingness to tell you that it was everybody. I don't know if you have any, any theories on that, but how would something like that, Twitter, commercial enterprise, um, microblog site, and all of its, seems like all of the posts at least are public, but what data could they have lost? What risk is there to people who have Twitter accounts, for example? I mean, I know that's not a company thing, but or what risk is there to Twitter in losing all of that data? Well, Twitter relies upon um, advertising, which relies upon the number of people coming in and use your service. I think people like to use the Twitter service because it's an easy way to communicate. Many people are on it. But they, they have the feeling they don't want people just collecting stuff about them off. It's just to collect. Right. It's just they wanted to, sh to share thoughts. But you, you know, everybody's got an account. There's some level of personal data with that account, but however minimal. Do so, so they is. have the president's credit card? I don't know. <laughs> I guess I don't we'll know if the president has his credit card. Yeah. Because he probably doesn't need one. Yeah. Fair point. Well, somebody's paying for his account somehow. So. Um, so some other questions. Let's talk uh, for a second and open open to any of you guys. What about China? So how do we deal with the fact that we're kind of, there's been a trade war and there's been some settling of the trade war, which is ostensibly good for at least our stock market. But how do we deal with um, Russia or China or what has historically been um, a, I don't know if we'll call it a the opposite side of the coin from the United States in terms of the way they look at politics and policies, but they're a vital trade partner. Like we sell so much stuff to them, they sell so much stuff to us, and yet there's this whole cyber thing going on in the background. And I, I don't even want to try to quantify it or say what it is, but can you guys speak to, to China? Like, what is that? What is China? What is going on with China in the cyber space, in security space? 
David, you look excited. Yeah, so when we talk about China's economic activities, it's primarily taking place inside the cyber domain. And cyber domain, of course, is that digital domain that we all work within. Alibaba, the exact government, right. And you know, China's primary challenge to the United States is as a competitor globally to dominate economics uh, throughout the world, but beyond that, to introduce their vision of how society should be governed or not governed. And so that's really the challenge that's outlined in the national defense strategy that's so different than the way we've thought about things in the past, that China is actually a revisionist power. Uh, They would like to see their vision of society, which is authoritarian in nature, that's state-centered, that doesn't have the same appreciation for individual rights, really control how business and politics and geopolitical relationships are conducted. That's a challenge for the United States because as a country that's based on the rule of law, we protect our intellectual property, particularly in a way that Uh, China doesn't necessarily respect. So, as a consequence, we are now in a situation where we're not only in a trade war, probably a a cold war to some extent, but also uh, even recent reports have suggested that uh, China's theft of U.S. intellectual property is valued at somewhere upwards of $250 billion to $600 billion per year. And how do we actually address that issue uh, in the context of a relationship that's mutually dependent? Well, so let me ask you something. In that context, China does have, you have to admit, there's innovation there. They are part of some of the biggest companies there. And dare I say, Huawei, ZTE, some of these companies are part of SEP, Standard Essential Patent Pools, for something like 5G. I mean, let's talk talk about that for a second. A big chunk of 5G technology was invented and owned by Chinese companies and invented and owned by Korean companies and invented and owned by U.S. companies and Japanese companies. They're all in these patent pools that make 5G work. So setting aside the fact that there's certainly disagreement between China and the U.S. on China taking intellectual property, things like that, but how do we go forward in using a technology like 5G or something that requires input from all sectors? Because they have money and they're inventing stuff. It's not all taken. So how do we do business with that? I mean, it's a different socioeconomic view. It's a different political view. It's a different worldview. I mean, how do we make that work because we have to make it work at some level right i'm not saying we have to you know go over and have like a a slumber party but we have to have some kind of um some kind of agreement with them so so what is that agreement solve the china trade problem let's do it it's got to be a coalition of the willing to find an agreement and we've got the u.s view of going after china may be seen in europe as a u.s view to make the U.S. the predominant force in this. And I think we've got to be very careful the way we approach it to make sure that our risks are seen and shared by our allies as we go forward, lest we lose them as we try and and fight what is obviously a very concerted and organized effort. One thing I'd like to follow on to what you said about actions on uh, after cyber attack, I work for a science and technology company Mm -hmm. that had a a data breach. And I went in to see the CEO CEO, almost right after it happened. And he said, well, what should we do? Should we try and fix it or should we report it? And I said, you need to report it and fix it. And, and he wasn't sure because it impact the potential view of the government, our major customer right. on our own security. And as it turns out, what we reported was being a, a massive attack against a number 
of companies who did similar support to the government. And I think that understanding that you need to report right away and you got to do that while you're protecting and shutting things down and assessing what you've lost and assess well, isn't, what may have isn't been there a legal obli- I mean, David and Bob, isn't there a legal obligation, a statutory obligation? If you have a breach, you have to report it, don't that's, you? That's I mean, correct. Particularly if it's government data. Yeah, but that's, is it the first thing you do? Right. And, and well, that's really the point. I mean, that's, so what is the first thing you do then before reporting? Well, you've discovered you have a breach, and I would suggest you report as you are progressing. Because if you don't, it could be hours and days. So actions in parallel. Yeah. Actions in parallel. Report, take action. You're not reporting and then doing something, doing something and then reporting. You're taking, you know, doing all these things at the same time. So I, I, I guess that goes back to your point of getting ahead of these things. So let's talk about one more hot button topic, at least. So we have to talk about Russia um, and the Ukraine and uh, I guess the upcoming election. Like, what is is there a fear in the intelligence community? I mean, you guys play in that space. Certainly, Bob and David, you guys do in your practice. And uh, General Fletcher, I don't know how much you have outside of the military, but there's a fear in the press that our election is going to be influenced by outside powers, whoever they may be. Um, how real is that threat? And you know, what can we do outside of the government to to be aware of that or combat it? Like, what, what's going on there? I think the threat is, is very real. And it's, uh, I think most people in their mind are thinking they're going to hack and change the votes, which is not the real threat. The real right. threat is that they are going to, it's an information warfare attack based upon where they perceive to be fissures in American society um, that favor different candidates and and play on um, misinformation to drive those visions even deeper. Um, I, you know, I think countries may favor certain candidates over another. That's, that's hard to say, but the more dysfunctional we get, the less likely we can quickly react to something they want to do on the international stage because of uh, the executive and Congress can't agree, American public can't come to a consensus. That benefits them. So they don't have to, in the end, influence the election. They just right. have to create um, fissures. Fisher you that. mean directly because they don't have to change a yes vote to a no vote or a vote for this person to a vote for That's that person. That's correct. They have to influence you to say, this person did this. And it could be false information. It could be true information, but they just have to create influence. So devil's advocate question for you guys, for all of you. I mean, if they influence somebody and that person changes their mind, um, I mean, have they technically, if it's false information, I get you can't post false information, but if they use true information and exaggerate it, and we have to admit sometimes media exaggerates some things in some cases, um, is that wrong? I mean, does it matter? Would it make a difference if it was a guy in, on a farm in North Dakota or if it's a guy sitting in a server room in Moscow? Does it make a difference if they say the same thing and influence the same people to the same result? Is that, is, that, is that the difference between a national security concern and is the other one a domestic security concern or not a concern because that's an American citizen? I would just say briefly this. I would say, yes, there is a fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. The Russians have always been interested in undermining our democratic process, and they've done that through information Good. operations. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. That's been going on since the 50s. What's different is that they are now technologically weaponized so that they can employ bots, that right. is automated digital capabilities that create the appearance of an upswell of information that actually, and even positions uh, through social media feeds in a way that was never been able to accomplish before. 
That, that is, it's the scope and the depth of their reach that's most troubling. And then beyond that, uh, they also have the capacity to shut down various aspects of critical infrastructure that are critical to supporting vote delivery and mechanisms. So Homeland Security is charged with the responsibility of protecting our electoral process through the state voting process, and, and they are working to that end. But the Russians have those capabilities. But gotcha. those same capabilities that are attacking the information infrastructure of the debate that goes on in a democratic forum are the same sorts of capabilities that they're applying against infrastructure of telecommunications, of uh, what they've Georgia. done in, in these countries. When you look across the countries in NATO in Eastern Europe, they see Russia as a threat across the entire spectrum of operations cyber, physical, and they know that they will attack any place. They'll attack physically, they'll attack with cyber, they will come in and turn off the lights, they'll turn right. off the water, they'll turn off everything. So I think what they do here is just one part of the spectrum that they can see. They're going to chest and see what they can manipulate here. So, so kind of the summary of everything so that we can get to our, our cocktails today gentlemen, is that it, it sounds like cybersecurity is a global issue, but a domestic issue equally. Um, in other words, if you're a domestic company and you have a website and you do anything on the internet, you're in the global economy. So you have to deal with global cybersecurity issues. And cybersecurity isn't something that is just for huge companies. It affects everyone. And um, track and report and manage. So get ahead of threats. And when you have a breach, hopefully you're ahead of that breach, but report and act on that breach immediately at the same time, no delay. Any other kind of summary, big summary points that I've missed? Um, and I guess we could say that probably Russia's not our friend is probably a safe, uh, safe one, you know. Um, but any other, any other kind of overarching themes for today that you think we should bring up? We covered it, at least in summary. I know we need... 400 hours and 300 people to, to cover it, but um, any other big points? There's not going to be a single regime every snap with you. Even with the United States, states are going to pass their own regimes and laws for how you deal with cybersecurity and privacy okay. laws. And you've got the European Union has a data protection program and scheme that's different from the United States. Yep. That's going to be different from others. So the, the transnational business, the global market, is going to have to adapt itself to systems that can adapt to all these different legal frameworks uh, unless there's going to be a treaty one day that people actually adhere to and that would unify even with the united states a single standard for data security but we don't have that now we certainly don't so we need that so i think that's the big takeaway is so we uniformity is a vulnerability yeah. you know the more different ways you do it the harder it is to attack you so you have to there's a real balance here that you yeah. have to go after the last thing I would say, Tom, is that information security and data security have to be part of a business's concept of their valuation and profitability. If that's not actually part of the business model and a measure of success, you already are going to be falling behind in the market. Great. Well, thank you, all of you guys, David, uh, General Fletcher, and Bob, for joining us today. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com. 